guys. Thank you so much, Grant. Uh, it's, it's really good to be with you guys this morning. Um, as Grant said, my name's Ben Stanton. Uh, some of you guys might know me, some might not. Uh, my wife, Rachel, and I were formerly members at Mosaic back in uh, 2011, 2012. And since 2012, uh, we've been working in Ghana, West Africa uh, for the last nine years, just working alongside the local church. Uh, <coughs> we fostered children in our home and worked with various youth programs. And basically, we've just we've looked at the, the kingdom within Ghana, right, like um, believers within Ghana who are just already doing great things. And we've just seen all the ways we can partner alongside them and just come alongside them. Um, <coughs> so... I never get more nervous than I do actually coming to speak to this church <laughs> uh, because you guys are like, this is my home, right? As I, um, as I walk through this place this morning, even though this is a different location, I haven't actually spoken at this location before, but as I walk through this, uh, this hall this morning, uh, I'm just looking out at the city of Birmingham, you know, and, and of course now, um, currently, I'm actually living in Lynchburg, Virginia, working as a campus pastor at Liberty University. Um, and while my wife, Rachel, is still in Ghana, um, so I've been in, in Lynchburg for the last six months, and uh, we're just, we have an adopted son, Joshua, uh, Silas, you, some of you guys saw him with me earlier back there, he's back with the children now, but our adopted son is still in Ghana, and we're right now waiting for like visa paperwork and all that to come through, so Rachel and Joshua will also be able to come across and join, so I appreciate your prayers in that as we're separated, and especially as I look at the city of Birmingham, just remember how much she loved this city. Um, and how much I love this city, and we love this city and this church together. So that being said, <coughs> my heart is racing right now, just standing in front of you guys, standing in this building. Um, <coughs> and honestly, I'm not a great preacher. Um, I love, like, I, I love this church. I love the church, and I really like that book. Um, and and I, 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 I like teaching that book. But honestly, my, my context is typically more just like uh, discipleship relationships and, and teaching people the Word of God, walking through the Word of God together, right? So this might look a little different this morning as we just kind of walk through this scripture together. Um, <coughs> Kyle called me a while ago, or Kyle and I were talking a while ago, and I told him actually that I was going to be in, in Birmingham this weekend. And actually, this is my brother, Jonathan, sitting on the back row there, and his fiance, Laura, round of applause, please. Um, so, came into, into, into uh, Birmingham and then into Mississippi this last, um, this last uh, weekend for my brother's bachelor's weekend, so we had a good time shooting some skeet and fishing and going to the Mississippi State-Alabama game, although we are Mississippi State fans, so that wasn't, uh, that wasn't as good as we kind of hoped it would be, <coughs> but, um, but anyways, uh, I told Kyle that I'd be here this weekend. And he, he said, uh, hey, would you like to preach? I said, yeah, I'd, I love any opportunity I get to, like, come to Mosaic and be with you guys. And he said, okay, well, uh, we're, you know, I don't know how many times you've ever preached the book of Nahum, you know. I was like, honestly, um, I haven't. Uh, and actually, he said, me neither. So we're, we're, we're in that together. Um, <coughs> and I've read the book of Nahum. I've taught it. I've taught Old Testament classes. Um, and as I open this book, guys, um, I really feel like the Holy Spirit kind of uh, arranged this for this morning. Like this really is, to me, I feel like if I'm going to preach one of the 12, then this is the one I would want to preach, right? Because this is near and dear to my heart for several reasons. Um, <clears throat> I want to read to you guys, read with you guys, Nahum chapter 1. And we're just going to do verse 1 and 2, okay? Verse 1 and 2. 
It's a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. All right, we're just going to close there and go home. You guys good? Um, <coughs> yeah. What do you, how do you guys feel about this scripture? When you first just read this, how does that kind of sit on you? Right? It doesn't sit great. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when I, when, uh, as Kyle and I were talking through this, and as I opened this scripture, I read the, those first two verses. I'm like, all right, we're off to a good start, guys. You know, way, way to go, Nahum. <coughs> because we sort of, this, this word jealous to us kind of had a, a, a bad connotation, right? And we, especially 21st century Christians, you know, there's not a lot of Maverick City songs about God being a jealous God, right? We don't hear a lot of big sermons about God being vengeful and full of wrath, right? <coughs> I want to take a minute, though, um, and just say, like, probably most of us, as we're reading through the scriptures, these are the verses that we kind of skip over, Right? And if, especially if we're present, like imagine you're presenting the scriptures to a new believer or to a young believer, right? And, it, and you, you come to these verses. What do you say here? How, like this is not the picture of, of the God of Christendom that we often want to present. We want the God of love and mercy and these things, right? But the thing is like this is scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, right? So as we're reading this, we're reading scripture. And this tells us that God, God is vengeful. He is jealous. <clears throat> in fact, if we go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord God, whose name is jealous. This word jealous in the Hebrew is kana. And it's actually, it, it's only used to refer to Elohim. To God, right? This word jealous, we see it five or six times in the scripture, and every time it refers to, to God, to Yahweh. <coughs> and um, the definition here is just, uh, it means, um, it, it's used of God as not bearing any rival. The severe, he is the severe avenger of departure from himself. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, it uses this verse, this same kana, it uses the same jealous. Again, it says, the Lord your God is an all-consuming fire. He is a jealous God. <coughs> I want us, as we, as we walk through this word jealousy, I want us to put the book of Nahum as a whole in context, right? Um, the book of Nahum was written to the city of Jerusalem. Nahum is a prophet in the city of Jerusalem. But at the time when the whole northern kingdom had been taken over by the kingdom of Assyria. Are you guys familiar with this? Kind of the context of this story, right? Well, a little thing about Assyria was that at the time, they were the world superpower. And they captured all the ten tribes and sent them off into exile. And then even they came and captured some of the cities in northern Judah. And then they came to the gates of Jerusalem. You guys remember this? And this is when Hezekiah was king. And Hezekiah goes to the Lord and prays to the Lord, and the Assyrians are turned back. 
the Lord says, I will give them news that there's trouble in their homeland and they'll run away from you because you came to me. And so this is kind of, uh, Nahum is, is now prophesying about Assyria to a Jerusalem that A, has experienced Assyria coming like a tide from the north. They've experienced them at their gates. And ten of the tribes of Israel are already in Assyria, captive. <coughs> and just a little background on, um, on Assyria, or the city of Nineveh, right? Uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Um, and he, you know, we, we just went over the book of Jonah, right? We just went over Jonah a few weeks ago. Well, Jonah was about 100 years before Nahum, right? So we see Jonah, God sends him to Nineveh. He preaches re uh, repentance to the Ninevites. And what happens? They repent. And in that, God relents, right? But then 100 years later, you know, the proverb says, like a dog returns to his vomit as a fool who returns to his folly. And here we see them returning back to their sinful ways. And what do we mean by their sinful ways? Guys, <coughs> um, Assyria was not just a world power, but they were one of the more, most ruthless world powers we've ever known. Back in 2019, there was a, um, there was a, what do you call those things at museums? Exhibitions. Sorry. I haven't been back in the U.S. that long, so some of my English language is like slowly coming back. So if I use some, if I use some weird words, give me grace. <coughs> Not justice or jealousy. Um, <coughs> anyways, um, there was an exhibition at the British Museum on, on the, uh, the, the, there was some stone and clay tablets they had, that they had found actu actually from kind of the height of the kingdom of Assyria, right? And this, um, th these tablets, there was a journalist from the Guardian newspaper in the UK who actually went to this exhibit and he wrote this. He wrote, their artistic propaganda relishes every detail of torture, massacre, battlefield executions, and human displacement that made Assyria the dominant power of the Middle East from about 900 to 612 BC. Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, tongues are being ripped from the mouths of prisoners. Sorry, that's just in here. Um, <coughs> that will mute their screams when in the next stage of their torture, they're flayed alive. In another relief, in another one of these stone reliefs, a surrendering general is about to be beheaded. And in a third relief, prisoners are forced to grind their father's bones before being executed in the streets of Nineveh. Like, guys, when we start talking about jealousy, justice, God's wrath, right? These are, I think one of the reasons these are difficult things for us to address is because we have not in our time experienced the depth of human depravity that some of these people have experienced, right? The fact of the matter is that since Jesus Christ came, he has literally changed the world. Think about it. Since the coming of Christ, since the crucifixion as the, of the Roman Empire, very soon Rome became Christian, the Roman Catholic Church. And from there forward, every world power has been heavily influenced by Christian morality. Western Europe, the United States, right? And that's not saying, like, bad things haven't Yes, good Lord, like, some really bad things have happened in those times between, you know, Jesus coming and now. But the reality is that even the worst times that we've seen have, have very shortly gone unchecked by the Christian morality that has influenced the entire world. Think about that. 
Think about who polices the world today. Who is the world police? The United States, the UN, right? The UN being made mostly up of Western Europe. What are their morals based on? Based on the teachings of Christ and the Christian church. Like literally the world that we live in today is completely changed from the world of the Israelites and Assyria. So when we talk about the, when, when God's proclaiming his judgments over the Assyrians, like we have to realize the, the depth of human depravity that we're talking about here. As I was looking at some of these reliefs and kind of researching like this Assyrian history, I guess I didn't want to look. You know, it's just, it's, it's really bad stuff. <coughs> to put it in a 21st century context, like remember when, um, when ISIS was just, was growing like a wildfire, right? And we were all pretty terrified of what this was going to become. And we all remember the videos that we saw of like, uh, of just terrible killings, beheadings, right? And we remember how horrible that was and how like there was just this guttural feeling of disgust that rose up in us, right? Imagine ISIS going unchecked and today being the world power. Not one of the world powers, but being the world power. And guys, Assyria, when you read and, and, and kind of research, they were, they were ISIS, like, unchecked even by Islamic moral code. They were ISIS magnified by 10. And so here <coughs> you have the context of, um, of Nahum's letter as, he's, as, he's, as God's spirit through him is prophesying. And what Nahum is prophesying is that Assyria is going to be destroyed. Not just a little bit destroyed, but utterly destroyed. So destroyed that actually only the first chapter is what we're really going to cover in this. Because chapters 2 and 3 really are just God's spirit through Nahum declaring how utterly he was going to destroy them. Everything was going to be wiped clean. And guys, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should repent. What he has said, he will do, and what he has promised, he will fulfill. Right? And in this moment, like, this happened. <laughs> What we read in Nahum, you know, years before the destruction of, of, of Nineveh, Nineveh was completely wiped off the map. So much so that they, they actually just rediscovered uh, these stone um, reliefs from the city of Nineveh. They only rediscovered the city of Nineveh in the last 50 years or so. Like they didn't know where it was because it was so utterly destroyed. Anyways, <coughs> so that puts this a little bit into, into context. Nahum is, is proclaiming complete and utter destruction of a kingdom, a world power built on such human depravity that we really don't have a, we don't have a framework to understand that, right? <coughs> and yet, Nahum's name, does anybody know what Nahum's name means? Literally translates to comfort. Comfort. And so here we have a man preaching filled with the Spirit of God, proclaiming the downfall of, of this huge kingdom. And when you read Nahum, honestly, guys, like, that verse 1 and 2 is pretty light work. When you read chapters 2 and 3, it's like, all right, we get the point. Like, we can stop now. But he, he's, he's proclaiming this, this utter destruction, and yet his name and the, really the title and theme of the book is comfort. So my, my question moving forward 
is how do we, how do we reconcile those two things? How do we, um, from here moving forward, how do we reconcile God's jealousy? Um, sorry, I'm pulling some more notes out here. <coughs> God's jealousy with the comfort of Nahum. I want, to look, I want us to look through chapter 1, okay? If you have a Bible, like, please open up to chapter 1, and we're going to read through a few verses. <clears throat> this is what I love, guys. Like, I told you, I like this book. Like, this book legitimately gets me excited. I've been walking with the Lord for 16 years. And, and even after, I mean, 16 years is not a terribly long time. But after walking with the Lord for 16 years, like, as I literally, I, I've been preparing for this for a few weeks now. And last night as I'm reading this, the Spirit, like, opened my eyes to see something new. And that's why I have, like, scribbled notes right here. But, <clears throat> all right, so what Nahum does here in chapter 1, in order to comfort the people of, of God, he points them to the jealousy and vengefulness of God. But he points them through the scriptures that had already been revealed to them. He points them to the character of Yahweh. So we're going to go first um, to um, chapter, verse, three, verse 3, the first part of verse 3. And this is, this is kind of the theme of this verse. The jealousy of God, his zealousness for his people and for his holiness is hope for the hopeless. And so here we read in uh, the first part of verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger but great in power, and the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And I told you guys I'm used to more of a teaching context, right? So let me ask, this verse, does that, does that ring a bell for anybody? Does that, does that send off a little alarm? Does anybody, can anybody point me in the right direction? Like what's, what, what, where, what, what are we seeing here? God's covenant to Israel, Exodus chapter 34, right? where he meets Moses on the mountaintop. And, he re, and, you know, at that point, too, Moses is kind of at the end of his rope. Kind of like Israel right now is at the end of their rope. Moses is at the end of the rope. He climbs on the mountaintop, and the Lord meets him. And what does the Lord say to him in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7? Somebody can actually read it out for us. <clears throat> I'm used to teaching. I'm also used to Ghanaian church, which is much more participatory than what we're used to. So anyways. <coughs> wow. You guys hear that? This is where God reveals his character. The, Moses has asked the Lord, like, hey, I can't keep doing this until you show me your glory. And the Lord says, okay, come up to the mountaintop, and I'm going to meet you there, and I'm going to declare my glory before you. And the way he declares his glory is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and merciful, maintaining steadfast love to thousands, right? Have, I, and then what else does he say? but who will by no means clear the guilty, but will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. It was some years ago when, we were, when you guys were in work play. Um, I remember actually talking about this scripture with you guys and just saying, like, that our English translation kind of robs us a little bit here. 
Because actually that, what, we, we often read that and we see he visits the iniquity of the children, uh, of the fathers to their children and the children's children, even to the third and fourth generation. And we read that and think like, that's kind of harsh. And yeah, it is kind of harsh, right? But what we don't see is that, that what we see there translated as he maintains steadfast love to thousands, it implies thousands of generations, right? And so in that we see like God will by no means clear the guilty, but his steadfast love is to thousands of generations to those who fear him. Imagine like what a promise is this Israel to be reminded of this right now in the time of, of Assyria. They've got a threat at their at their they've got a threat at their door that that like when you're conquered by Assyria, it's not like, hey, we're just gonna take you as prisoners. It's like, hey, we're gonna rip out your tongue. Hey, we're gonna like slaughter your people in front of you. They're afraid. Uh, when's Assyria coming back again? And here Nahum points them to the character of God. He says, hey, I've seen what Assyria has done to you, and I will not clear the guilty. And this is what I'm saying. We, we don't really have context for this because, honestly, guys, we talk about, like, political pressures. We talk about mask laws. We talk about vaccinations. We talk about a lot of stuff. Very few of us in this room have ever experienced true oppression. I, I dare say none of us. I don't know you in this room, so I might be wrong. But I'm just saying, like, when we're, when we're talking about oppression, these people were facing oppression. And when you're oppressed, the hope for a just king, the hope for, for, for justice, the hope for, for somebody who will by no means clear the guilty, but who will remember what they've done to you, that's good. That's something to hold on to. That's hope for the hopeless in this moment. And at the same time, by pointing them back to God declaring his character to them, he, he's reminding them that God is maintaining his steadfast love to them. And Assyria may be at their door, but the Lord is maintaining his steadfast love for them. And he will for thousands of generations. Praise God. <coughs> so, God's, uh, God's jealousy is hope for the hopeless. As we go to um, chapter th uh, verse 3, sorry, I keep going to the same place. Verse 3, the second part. Here, this might be a little more, um, a little more of a, oh, I'm missing the English word again. A little more of a um, obscure, there we go. A little more of an obscure reference. But um, he says here, his way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Somebody turn for, for me to Job chapter 30, 37, verse 11 to 13. And just some context around this verse. There's only two times this word whirlwind is actually used. Um, one is to describe when Elijah is taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. And the other is to describe, uh, basically, you, <coughs> you guys know the story of Job, right? Job, uh, you remember, he basically in the beginning of the book, he has everything taken away from him. And it says in that that you remember his children, actually, were meeting together in a house. And his servant comes running and says, a strong wind came from the wilderness and blew down the house. And it fell on them, and they're all dead. And only I escaped. Right? <coughs> it's not coincident that at the end of the book of Job, 
After Job's heard from all of his friends, they've gone on and on and on with all of their reasoning and human, it's, it's human reasoning. As they go on and on, then finally the spirit of the Lord, you guys, he, he remember, he fills this young man named Elihu, right? And Elihu stands up and he says, it's not years that give a man wisdom, but the spirit within a man. And he starts speaking. And guys, as this young man is proclaiming between his three or to, to his three or four elders in this meeting, as he's speaking, he starts speaking about the power of God. And he starts speaking about uh, the power of God in, 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 in a storm. And the guys, literally, as he's speaking, a storm manifests behind him. And from this storm, the clouds start spinning, and a whirlwind drops from the heavens. And in that whirlwind, the Lord, it says, as Elihu is speaking, that eventually Yahweh himself takes over, and he starts speaking from the whirlwind. Just like he spoke from the bush with Moses, he speaks to Job through the whirlwind. And this is what we're going to read in Job 37, verse 11 to 13, is what he says. Somebody got that? Yeah. Thank you. He, who, who is the one who does these things? He's talking about the whirlwind right now. And mind you that Job's children were just killed by a strong wind. And here as the Lord is speaking about this, this, this whirlwind, he says, who does it? Who musters the storm? Response. <laughs> who musters the storm? Yahweh. He controls the storm. So, hey, Job, that wind that came through, it hurts. It's a hard pill to swallow, but that was Yahweh. And the only way you can get through that is trusting that he's good. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But, <coughs> hey, Job, like, it's the Lord who musters the whirlwind. And the hope that God gives to Job right there, I love, uh, after, after God says all these things to Job, then Job says, before I had heard of you as with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. Like when he saw actually how powerful and how good and how righteous this God that he had been worshiping was, he's like, hey, I didn't even know. I spoke of things too great for me. I didn't even know what I was talking about. But now I've seen you and I understand. It's what Paul says about us. You know, He says, now we see as in a mirror dimly lit, but then we'll see face to face. And then we'll understand in the by and by. Um, <coughs> it, the, the way that Job is able to grasp everything that had happened to him was in knowing that God was in control. Even these terrible circumstances, God was in control. God is sovereign, and he rules over the whirlwind. So when, when Nahum points the Israelites, remember the people reading this, this letter are Israelites, right? And they've been taught these things from their parents. They've been taught these things from their priests. So like when he references Exodus 34 and the character of God, they're catching it. When he references the whirlwind, they're catching it. Every, every, illusion, every, every reference that he gives them is creating an image and an illusion in their mind. And they're connecting the dots. They're realizing, like, in this moment, as I face this, God is jealous. And he chooses to reveal his character as a jealous and even avenging God. 
And that's hope for me. Because that's, ho- that's hope for me because I can hold on to his hope for the hopeless and that he, in his character, he will not clear the guilty, but he will maintain steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who fear him. And even when the whirlwind comes, even if the Assyrians come, he is sovereign. And he, he's the master over the whirlwind. And then so that brings us to <clears throat> the next verse. We're going to move down to uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. And I'm just hitting the references. That's, and that's what I love about this. That's, Hebrews 4.13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, dividing joints and marrow and dividing the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men. Right? And I love this book because, uh, and, and you can see right here in chapter 1 that Nahum loved this book. <laughs> and, and he references it three times that I've seen in chapter 1. And, so, <clears throat> and actually more than three times. We're moving down to verse 7. It says here, the Lord is good. I want to, this is not up here, but in verse 6, actually, he says there, if you've got your Bibles open, he says, who can stand before his indignation? That word indignation, like the, the literal translation of that is, is to want, is something that someone who frosts at the mouth. Think rabid dog. Like someone who just, is, is just wants to destroy something. And it says, who can stand before the Lord's indignation? His wrath to the point of frothing at the mouth. Who can stand before that? Nobody. It, it goes down. But then in verse 7, immediately after saying that, guys, and that's what I'm saying, like this jealousy thing, this avenging, it's a hard thing for us to swallow. But like, Look at the beauty of this, how he can say that in one breath. And then in the very next, he turns and says, Yahweh is good. Yahweh is good, a refuge in times of trouble. And he, he knows those who take refuge in him. <clears throat> this is another really obscure reference. Maybe somebody in here will know where it goes. But it, it points us to Psalms chapter 9. It points us to Psalms chapter 9, verse 7 to 10. Does somebody get that? By the way, African churches also typically preach for about two hours, so <coughs> hope y'all are ready. Hope you brought some snacks. All right. <coughs> Psalms chapter seven or nine, verse seven to ten. What do we got? Yep. is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. You guys see that here? And he's alluding directly to that. And I love that because the first part of that, the first, like, verse 7 that we read, what does it say? It says, the Lord sits enthroned forever. Right? And he's a refuge in times of trouble to those who know him. And so, guys, <coughs> again, in, right here in these three references, like, um, Nahum, is, he's giving them a hope. A hope for a helpless nation who they have no power to resist Assyria. They have nothing. If, if Assyria decides tomorrow to siege Jerusalem again, they're gone. 
And not only are they gone, but they're gone to the, one of the most heinous kingdoms that ever reigned over the earth. And, and yet here the Lord is assuring them, hey, I know you're helpless. But just like he pointed back in Exodus, like, I'm not going to clear the guilty and I'm going to maintain my steadfast love to you. And then when he points to Job, hey, I'm sovereign and I rule over the whirlwind. And like he points to them now, like, I'm your refuge in your times in trouble. And he says, and that's because I sit enthroned forever. He is the king. And no one can rise up against him. I always love Psalms chapter 2 where it says, um, God is kind of speaking to the nations. And it says, why do you plot in vain? Like, why are you even trying to rise up against Yahweh? Like, it says the Lord scoffs. Like, he just sits back and just laughs at, at the world's attempts. And he's like, hey, like, my chosen one is enthroned. You can't do anything. You can't remove him. He's seated on the throne. And guys, like, this was hope for Israel, right, to think that Yahweh was enthroned. Imagine how much more hope this is for me and you who know the person of Jesus Christ. This was hope for them, and they knew the character of Yahweh as revealed through the scriptures. But just like Hebrews says, like, in the former days, God spoke through angels and through prophets, but now he has spoken through his son. And John says, we have seen him, you know, full, uh, seen him as, of the only, as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Right? Our eyes have beheld him. <clears throat> How much hope is this for us? That Jesus is seated in the heavens. Um, he gives hope for the helpless. And I want, I want us now to move to Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. And in this verse... We're going to see, just, just as we saw that Jesus is, Yahweh is seated on the throne, now we're going to see that <coughs> Jesus, in this, in this letter, Yahweh is giving the people hope for the hope, helpless, and he's giving them hope for a kingdom. And so we're looking at chapter 1, verse 15. Somebody read this, well, I'll read this one. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Keep your feasts, Judah, and fulfill your vows. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. They will be utterly cut off. <clears throat> Does this ring a bell for anyone? Specifically, behold on the mountains, messengers who bring good news. It's pointing us to Isaiah chapter 52, specifically verse 3 to 9. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 3 to 9. And if somebody has that and wants to read it out for us, Verse 3 to 9, 52, 3 to 9.
Amen. The feet of those who bring good news come on the mountain, those who publish peace, those who proclaim to Zion, your God reigns, right? Imagine a people in Jerusalem, within the walls of their city, Assyria is, is a looming danger just, far, just, just, just to the north, northeast of them, right? And here, Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace. Imagine in that moment of fear. Like I imagine right now, like I told you, I've been, Rachel and I have been separated for the last six months. The moment that I received that email from USCIS that our paperwork has moved and that she's approved to travel, our son is approved to travel. Like the joy that will fill my heart. <laughs> and that's, that's a small thing. That's not talking about the destruction of my family, my city, and everything that I know. But imagine the joy. Behold, on the mountains come the messengers who publish peace. <coughs> this is a promise of a kingdom. It was a promise to, of a kingdom to Israel. But as we know, like, yes, Assyria was destroyed as Nahum prophesied. Um, but we know that later on, this Jerusalem and the, Juda- the Judean kingdom, uh, tribes, what happened to them? They were carried away too, to Babylon, right? So <coughs> I think this, as we read this scripture, as we read Isaiah 52, like we're, we're hearing a proclamation of the destruction of the Assyrians. He, he, he even references the Assyrians in that scripture and says, I know that for now, for a small time, you've been oppressed by the Assyrians, but I'm going to deliver you from that. But <coughs> he talks about a throne that will be established forever. And this is where I want to bring this home to us. Like we're hearing about the, the, the kingdom and the threat of Assyria, the threat of human depravity just raining down on the promised land and moving like a tide, right? This promise of a kingdom, guys, <coughs> it's hope for then, but it's hope for now. And the great thing about this is, like in this moment, God's prophesying to the city of Jerusalem. And he's prophesying against the Assyrians. Guys, think about this. It was just 100 years before that he sent Jonah to preach to them repentance. You guys remember what he said to Jonah at the end of that book. He said, you know, the plant dies, right? And he's like, you feel pity for this plant? And Jonah's like, yeah, I feel pity for the plant. I like the plant. (coughs) And it was a fiddle leaf fig. (coughs) Uh, but, But then... Um, you know, but then the Lord says, like, you feel pity for this plant that you neither created nor formed nor cared for. How much more should I feel pity on 120,000 souls who don't know the right from the left? And then he adds all so much cattle. I don't really know what that's about. But anyways, I'm thinking about the 120,000 souls that don't know the right from their left, right? It's like, and I love this. I want you all to just turn with me to Isaiah 19. And we're going to end here uh, pretty soon, <coughs> in the next hour or so. Um, Isaiah chapter 19. Um, verse 19. I'm going to read this to you guys. It's one of my, as a missionary, this is one of my favorite scriptures. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh. In the midst of the land of Egypt, in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border, 
and it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And when the Egyptians cry to Yahweh because of, the, uh, because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And, the, and Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and will worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, both striking and healing, and they will return to Yahweh. If you replaced Egypt right here with Israel, this would make a lot more sense within the context of Old Testament prophecy. But here, he's not talking about Israel in this moment. He's talking about their enemies. He says, I'll strike them both striking and healing, and they will return to me, and, he will, and, and the Lord, Yahweh, will listen to their pleas for mercy, and I will heal them. And that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to where? Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship Yahweh with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third, together with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, listen to this, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. As we read this, we see, like, <coughs> as Nahum is proclaiming, God God feels a righteous jealousy. You know, I, I think it was um, one of the commentaries I was reading. Just, just put this in context of like you know, a man for his wife, right? And we read that even uh, in the book of Hosea, right? I mean, that's a perfect picture of this. But <coughs> we see that uh, the Lord, there, there's a context in which jealousy is a good and wholesome thing. There's a context in which vengefulness is a good and wholesome thing. And so in this moment, we see the, the Lord saying that he is jealous for his people Israel. He's jealous. Not, the thing is, guys, he's not only jealous for his people Israel, he's jealous for his people Assyria. And the fact is that Assyria, when they repented under Jonah, he showed mercy to them. And we see through the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, God's mercy and grace to them throughout the historic story of these areas. He's jealous for them, and he wants them. So his kingdom, the hope, he, he gives hope for the hopeless to the people of Israel. And he, he, gives, um, he gives hope for a kingdom, for a new kingdom that's coming. But guys, this Isaiah 19 is not fulfilled. He gives hope for the nations. And this is where I want to just, like, I love this scripture. I love the thought that the Lord cares for people around the world. The other reference um, of that, uh, you know, the messenger who brings good news is Romans chapter 10, verse 11 to 15. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have that pulled up back there. Can somebody read that for me? Romans 10, verse 11 to 15. Anybody? 
Amen. This is a message about the gospel. How beautiful are the feet who get, bring good news. As it is written in the book of Isaiah, right? And here he's pointing us to the kingdom of now, or the kingdom of now for the Israelites and the promise for now, but the promise for the future, guys. And this is what I want to challenge you with as we read this, like realizing as we walk through our world today, there are a lot of kingdoms. Granted, we don't see what they saw, but there's a lot of stuff going on. But like first and foremost, your hope is found on Christ and nothing else. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is what he says. Even in God's justice and wrath and vengefulness, he gives hope for the nations. And he promises even to those that face his justice, everyone who calls on my name will be saved. So let's, my mission with this scripture is just as, as we look at Nahum, and we understand these promises, these promises of hope that he's giving to us as he points again and again and again to the character of Yahweh. We have a God who is jealous, who is jealous over you and me personally, who is jealous over his bride, the church in this world. But even Second Peter, I think 3.19, points us out and says that the Lord desires that all men should be saved. And he is patiently enduring the depravity of man, waiting. It says, and Romans says that all of creation is, is, is groaning, eagerly awaiting the redemption of God's children. And that's us. We are the kingdom. We are the messengers of good news. So as we go out, I just pray that you guys proclaim good news. As we go out, I pray that you put your hope in a God who, who, who promises that he will, he will not clear the guilty. He will by all means remove oppression. And even though we see oppression in this world, there's coming a day where there will be a righteous king seated on the throne. And it says, it says back there in that verse in Isaiah, that, or in Psalms, that he will judge the world with righteousness. He's our hope then and he's our hope now. So as you walk out, whatever we meet in this world, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in a good king. Our hope is in a king who loves us enough to take vengeance on our behalf. A, a king who, who loves humanity enough that he will, in the end, vanquish our depravity and corruption. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, we just give thanks to you. Lord, you are good and holy and righteous, Lord. And as we just um, come into your presence, Jesus, I thank you for all that you've accomplished on our behalf. I thank you, Lord, that you stand with righteous indignation against sin, that you stand, Lord, you want this creation to be delivered. Lord, we see it as it is. We don't even have an idea of what it could be and what it should be. So, Lord, just I pray, God, that you give us vision, vision for your kingdom, vision to hope in you, Lord, and to walk as your children, to walk as your beloved people, Lord, but also the hope to, to speak it out to our neighbors, Lord, to, to be the messengers of good news who publish peace, to speak your word out to, to a world, Lord, who, who may not be facing the Assyrians, but, Lord, they're, they're facing just corruption. They're facing, Lord, just depravity. Um, God, help us to put our hope in you. Help us to walk with you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for your love for the nations, God. I thank you, God, that, that you're, you're not a... Um, an ethnocentric God, Lord, 
but that you have, you've called to yourself a people from every tribe, language, and tongue. And you've filled us with your Holy Spirit. And you've said we are your people and you are our God. And Lord, I thank you that all of us together call out to you in unity. And we say praise be to your name, Father. We cry out to you in unity and say, Abba, Father. You are, you are our, our friend, our Savior, our God. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we thank you for your anger against sin, God, that you will, in, in the end, vanquish corruption from this world. We don't want, we, we naturally don't want any of that to enter into the, the kingdom to come. So, Lord, we thank you for your deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen.